everyone. And this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, I don't have Danny anymore uh, because he's on vacation. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to sound like I'm taller, though. Yes, yes. You know, you can sound taller on a podcast. Did you know that? I'm going to do my best. I do it all the time. Uh, so I have a special guest host, and um, he's way more famous than Danny and I, so we're kind of hoping maybe more people listen to our podcast now. <laughs> we have Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons and a whole host of other th things. So uh, I don't really think you need much of an introduction other than Gun Jesus, but uh, I don't know. For those people who <laughs> might live under a rock and don't know who you are, who are you? Uh, I run ForgottenWeapons.com and the Forgotten Weapons YouTube channel, where uh, basically every day we take a look at some interesting, unusual firearm. Exactly. And because of Ian, and because he's so famous about all the guns he talks about every day, um, we've learned, Danny and I have learned the hard way that we can't talk about firearms that Ian's already talked about, even if they're in our own collection. <laughs> You made a critical error by letting me film in the Cody Museum a couple times. Oh, yeah. Although I think I told you about this. I was really proud of this moment. Um, so I do a video series for National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is like different artifacts. And it's much more public facing. It's not, you know, as technical, obviously, as your stuff is. That's not really my bailiwick um, on, on videos. But um, I did a video on the on our cross dominant shotgun quote unquote you know our shotgun that has you know the the bent stock so i do this video and someone comments and they're like and already did it and i was and i was like Ugh! so i clicked on your video and mine was released like three months before yours and i was so proud of myself like it was probably one of the biggest wins i've ever had <laughs> It's the only and they were one. different guns. Yes, they were different guns, but same concept. But we do, nice. we do sometimes, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, because of your uh, John Wick attempt to be on the movie, that wasn't English. See, I only had one <laughs> sip of whiskey already and I can't talk. Uh, <laughs> but because of your, did you start the petition? What is that? Talk about that and then I'll explain uh, what's I, okay, happening I, on our page. I did not start it. Um, someone asked me in the Q&A if I would have any interest in like having a cameo in John Wick, one of the future John Wick movies. And I said, of course I would. That would be awesome. And then someone else started the petition. And there are currently 92,000 people who've signed that petition, which is crazy. That is, I'd love I, it I saw it online. It. I haven't signed it yet. I will do that what? after this podcast. I know. I'm not like... For being a millennial, I am very technologically inept. Like, Danny had to explain what the Boogaloo was to me last year. Like, I don't <laughs> know, like, any of that. The Reddit universe, like, I just don't. I I'm trying, but I'm just very much a boomer when it comes to technology and social media. Uh, it's a good thing I'm a pretty girl, right? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we're not just going to shoot the shit during this uh, podcast. We do have a loosely veiled theme. And it's actually kind of interesting because Ian and I were talking about what we could talk about. And, you know, French guns is not my area of expertise. <laughs> uh, Nor is it something so, that anyone in the audience cares about. Oh, they do, though. <laughs> they do. Uh, you'd be surprised what people want to hear about. But so we wanted to talk about collecting in general. And actually, there was I, I told Ian, we actually, Danny and I recorded a podcast on collecting, and it was so bad that we didn't air it. So <laughs> this is perfect. And... <laughs> 
Before we get into kind of the conversation about collecting in museums, and you did a video years ago about like private collections versus museums that I thought's kind of a great cue up. And if I prepared for podcasts, I would have rewatched it. So can you kind of talk a little bit about what that was um, so people can go and look at it just so that it kind of sets up this conversation? Okay, well, um, the gist of it is there are pros and cons to both museums and private collections. Um, and probably the really short version would be that guns that end up in private collections uh, run the risk of being damaged uh, because private owners often, but not always, want to go out and shoot historically significant and rare firearms. Um, however, well, and they also are not in the public eye. They're not accessible to the general public. Uh, they are, however, accessible to people that the owner knows, likes, invites in, and that sort of thing, which sometimes can include, you know, a large swath of the scholarly community. Guns that are in museum collections are, in the best case, well, they're, they're pretty much always protected from damage, unless the museum is really incompetent. Um, that does exist. <laughs> oh, I have no doubt. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like accidents can happen anywhere. There's oh, yeah. a whole bunch of stuff in Springfield's collection um, that's badly fire damaged because there was a fire, I don't know how many decades ago. Um, but I was looking up some old uh, Harper's Ferry stuff and not the Harper's Ferry fire, but some of the guns in their collection like, well, this was a good example of that, but now it's badly fire and water damaged. Yeah, so well, and the standard of care has changed. So, you know, we don't do things that like, you know, everyone used to use gun oil on everything all the time for, you know, steel wool used to be used a lot. Um, light levels, you know, we've come a long way with mm -hmm. the ability to kind of regulate light levels and foot candles and things. So, I mean, even just like, if nothing happens, just the way we used to care for things like 20 years ago, isn't necessarily the best way to do it now. Or at least but we in our presentist mind think so. <laughs> now, when it comes to accessibility, in the best case, a museum will allow a, a, a level of accessibility to basically anybody. Um, if a museum puts a gun out on display, it means that pretty much anyone can see one side of it from behind glass. And that's, that's something. Um, guns that are in museums in the reference collection, you know, in the back vaults, which every museum probably, every museum I've ever been to has more stuff in their back vault than they do actually on display. Those guns are not at all accessible to the general public, but they are generally accessible to academics and researchers. In a similar way, in my experience, that private collections are, um, mm. in that you have to present some bona fides to be able to get in and look at them. Just not the same sort of standard as going to a private collector, but fairly similar. Um, so are guns better off in private collections or museums? It's, there are arguments to be made both ways. I'm actually planning to make an addendum to that video. Because oh, you should. If, if the museums aren't in the United States, uh, there's a, a non-zero risk of the museum destroying things yeah. because laws change or the museum staff change. And I actually, I know a guy who has a couple examples of basically one of a kind prototype military pistols that are now about a centimeter thick because they were taken out of the museum and crushed because they were handguns that weren't allowed. <sighs> Um, under Spanish law, and now they're extremely flat guns in an American private collection. Well, but in, in theory, I mean, that could happen here because, um, you know, if we had, like we talked about last week um, on our Farms Law thing, if we had a bump stock 
like when the, you know, when everyone had to surrender them, we either, you know, had to surrender it, destroy it, whatever. And so, I mean, things could go away in U.S. museums, which is very concerning. But if you are they going could. to do an addendum, I don't work full time for a museum anymore. So I have some thoughts. <laughs> okay. So we can either talk about this in depth or the the question that I had gotten asked a lot was from beginning collectors who come on and ask me, like, what should I collect? And to me, that brings up some interesting questions that pertain to both private collectors and museums. Yeah, exactly. No, let's let's move on to that because we we've talked a little bit about, you know, how people get involved in, you know, their passions in terms of firearms or really whatever it is. And I have to remember what parts that I've already said on the podcast and what parts are on the unaired episode that was just a train wreck. Um, but it is true because that is something that people get asked a lot. They ask us a lot. Um, I remember a guy came into the Cody Farms Museum maybe like six years ago, sat down um, in the outer office and asked me or, or asked if I could provide him everything he needed to know before he went to the Winchester Gun Show that weekend so that he didn't get had at the show. And I was just like, no, no. <laughs> like, okay, you're on your own, you know, and, and, and the one thing that we talk about the most, and I know you have a question that, or that you provide people, but you know, when we kind of get past what people want to collect, it's, you know, collect books first. And you have a lot of books and guns behind you right now. Yes. Yes, I do. The, the podcast listeners can't see that, but yeah, I have yes. a, I've accumulated a substantial library, which is as important to me as my actual gun collection, really. Yeah. I mean, it's um, invaluable. So, so yeah. how do you start to answer that question? I might, the first problem is that's an impossible question to answer <laughs> yeah. because I think it's a very personal question. And so my answer is usually a second question, which is what are you interested in? Um, I think a lot of people have this idea and I'm not sure where it comes from that gun collecting is a very uniform thing. Like there is, here is the, the result of a hundred percent of a gun collection and it will include all of but they don't even know what it includes, but it includes something. And there's probably a list somewhere. Yeah. And so if you want to collect guns, you need to fill that list. Yeah. And that's, I, it could hardly be farther from the truth. Um, to my mind, gun collecting is about themes. It's about pick something that you're interested in and it could be mechanical. It could be a conflict. It could be a country. It could be a, a physical feature. Maybe you're interested in pocket revolvers. Maybe you're interested in, rampart guns or anything in between um but pick something that you're interested in it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be rare even yeah. necessarily um the most interesting well not the most interesting but an interesting thing that i ran <laughs> across just recently um at one of the auction houses is someone consigned and it had to be one person just looking at what was in this these batches of guns someone consigned an entire collection of uh, like turn of the century Hopkins and Allen cheapo pocket revolvers that were engraved. Yeah. So you've got all of the, all of the Saturday night special suicide special Hopkins and Allen really they're like, they're like the high points of 1900. Oh, yeah. But this guy had collected engraved ones. <laughs> and it was like, I'd never seen that before. Wow. Yeah. There was a, an engraved gold inlaid swamp angel. <laughs> That was the brand, the, the trademark brand name on the gun, Swamp Angel. That, I, I, got, I don't even have a witty comeback to that. Well, and that is what I like about collecting because, 
Like people always think like, oh, okay, so I should be a Winchester collector or I should be a coal collector. And to be honest, I mean, I get asked all the time what I collect and we can talk about what I collect here in a second because it's racy and I'm now the most popular person at the American Society of Arms Collectors because uh, <laughs> I finally admitted what I collect to them and uh, they also agreed that that was, I should, do a, I should do a display. But you know, I think a lot of people think that they should go to the more traditional kind of avenues. To me, like no offense to Winchester collectors, coal collectors, I find the history fascinating, but that's so boring in my mind. You know, like it's just, yeah. and I couldn't afford it, you know, even if I wanted to. Um, you know, and for me, I started collecting things when I first got into it. Um, into firearms, I started collecting like what I, I used to joke at, at meetings um, when I'd be in collectors groups. I collect what I can afford. That was my that was my passion, or something that had a story or was weird. It didn't have to be in the best condition. I have a a Springfield rifled musket that my mom's colleague, so one of the teachers at the high school my mom teaches at, when he was a kid, he found this gun inside a wall in his house. They took it <laughs> apart. They could never put it back together. It's in horrible condition. I just gotten into guns, and I he asked my my mom if you know, I could put it back together. And so I took it into Soldiers and Sailors Museum where I was doing my first gun internship in Pittsburgh. And, you know, we had barrels of, you know, extra ramrods and all kinds of stuff to kind of complete it because it's never going to be really, you know, what it was. And they weren't accession pieces. So we, you know, used Gorilla Glue to uh, glue the stock back <laughs> together and, you know, did all kinds of stuff that would make lots of collectors cringe. But, you know, it was back together. It was never going to be something of extreme value. And when I went to give it back to him, he's like, you keep it. Keep it. Nice. Maybe, I, maybe I did such a bad job that he was like, never mind. <laughs> But yeah, oh, that's but what that is? Never, never mind. <laughs> so I started collecting stuff like that. And I've always, you know, as a museum professional, people think that everything that the museum wants must be pristine. And that's not, you know, the case. Now, come to the Cody Firearms Museum and you'll think it, it's the case. But because that's what a lot of museums do collect. But, you know, I love like a gun that's kind of beat up and got a history to it. Um, but yeah, you pick what you like. And guess what? What you like may, you might roll the lottery and win the lottery. And 20 years from now, it's collectible yeah yeah i think the important thing is don't base it on what you think other people think you ought to like mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of stuff out there that's vastly underappreciated you know just because it may not sound sexy and collectible and may not be super expensive that doesn't mean it doesn't have fascinating history behind it i have a friend exactly. who collects portuguese rifles well portuguese yeah. firearms in general and at just at a surface level you look at that and you go eh, there's nothing really interesting there but in reality, there's a ton of interesting history to it. Um, well, and it's through those collections that I think, you know, we start to learn about different parts of history that haven't been studied, you know, so those types of people are incredibly valuable because you, especially with an academic system that's not necessarily as friendly to firearms, you know, when you've got people that are studying so specifically, maybe they're not looking at the bigger picture, but they're looking at the markings and the technical pieces of the like Portuguese firearms. It's not something that I you know, I ever talk about. And so it, it adds to kind of the collective. And so you're really doing a service by collecting your passion because chances are, if your passion isn't popular, then you, you need to collect it because we do need to know it at some point, you know? Actually, you, you segue into a fantastic point that I can make, which is <laughs> these things. Now the folks listening can't see what this terrible looking thing is. Can you still hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, and you're familiar with the Browning 1900? Uh-huh. You ever seen one that has a hammer? No, that's weird. So 
this is a Chinese copy of a Browning 1900. And that hammer is just a solid milled piece of the back of the slide huh. to look like a hammer. So I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book on Chinese pistols made during the warlord era. So like 1911 to 1949 in China and the, the colloquial Chinese mystery pistols where every single one is different. Um, there is no uniformity to them. And the only reason that I'm able to do this is because I got access to a collection of about 250 of these things. Oh, wow. And who on earth collects them? Well, there was one guy who decided that he was really interested in this. And he spent decades, literally decades, collecting these guns whenever he could find them. And had he not done that, and by the way, these are pistols that people today still uh, reject as like, that's total trash. Like, I'd never buy it. Why on earth would you have it? Yeah. And to be fair, probably the majority of them we would consider unsafe to fire today. But because this one person went, yeah, you know what? Screw what everyone else thinks. I find these fascinating. I'm going to collect them. Well, he put together a phenomenal collection and he probably didn't spend very much money in the process because nobody had any interest in these things. And now that collection is enough to form the basis for a scholarly work on the subject. Yeah. Well, and... One thing that comes to mind, because you mentioned the, the connection between private, you know, and, and collecting in museums and, you know, how we go about doing it. And, and the nice thing about starting your own collection is, you know, you can be, you know, as you, know, you, you can be as open to collecting whatever you want um, or you can be really, really, really exclusive to what you want. And what a lot of museums nowadays, we're kind of going the opposite direction, which is where we've got these things that we've amassed over the years that um, to some extent, they are a collection, but they're almost like a hoarder's collection of <laughs> things sometimes, you know. <laughs> so we're trying to backtrack of, you know, some people's minds and we don't get to kind of actively collect the way that people would if they were just collecting something they're interested in for their own personal use. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We're, always, we're cleaning up other people's messes. That's what we do most of the time. Like, why is this in the collection? It happens all the time. So there's a, here's a neat one. I, I told you I'd bring this up. Um, oh, yeah. I, w- I just recently had the chance to film a spruce gun, which is a colloquial term for a specific batch of Winchester 30-30 lever action rifles that were purchased and issued by the U.S. Army, or actually by the U.S. Signal Corps, which was played the role of the Air Force at the time, in 1918 to the... I kid you not, the Spruce Production Division that was deployed to Oregon and Washington in 1918 to harvest spruce timber to make airplanes with. Yeah. And rather than take up, you know, Springfields or 1917 Enfields that were needed in France, the Signal Corps just bought these guys off the rack Winchester 3030s. (laughs) And there's a fascinating history to what they did. But looking at that, my thought was, wow, what about like, what other guns are associated with forestry? And given my personal collection of French guns, the one that immediately came to mind is uh, there's a batch of Berthier rifles that were converted into basically engineer carbines by Turkey. These guns were confiscated uh, by the Turks in the late 1940s. They they cut them down to a a middle length and basically their own custom configuration left them chambered in eight label because you couldn't get eight label and then issued them to forest rangers whose job was preventing basically poaching of Turkish walnut forests that were under government control. And that's this really interesting, small, well-defined, well-known batch of guns. And there's your, there's my perfect second 
forest gun. Yeah. I haven't come up with what, like, you need three for a good little display. And I haven't come up with what the third one. But, when you when you texted that to me yesterday, I was like, "Ma, you should take that old Winchester that was found leaning up against a tree." Just and not because of forestry, but just because it was becoming a part of the tree. You it know? was so, in a tree. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that would work. That was like the first thing that popped into my my mind. And then I also think that maybe this has been done before because I feel like Yellowstone did a little exhibit on forestry, and there were guns in it. I'll have to I'll have to check it. I'll let you know because I feel like this exhibit exists. And somebody told me about it, um, but don't worry, we, we don't have to. You know, we, we don't have to tell too many people about that. You know, only like five people listen to this podcast, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, well, and so know, I guess what's that? I was gonna say, but there you go. There's how eclectic a collection can be, and there's nothing like that's as legitimate of a collection in my mind yeah. as someone who wants to have, you know, the penultimate collection of Colt revolvers. I think so too. And so I guess I'll point out what I collect. Uh, I mean, I do collect firearms, don't get me wrong, but uh, we've talked about this in past things. Technically, um, I, when I was curator of the Cody Firearms Museum, I'm bound by the Curator Code of Ethics, which says that I, you don't collect what you curate. Um, and every gun curator in the country violates that. <laughs> <laughs> that to some extent. Um, but the concept behind it is, is that if you do collect what you curate, then you have to give the institution the first right of refusal. Um, and so the fortunate thing when you run a collect, uh, you run a museum where the collection is so vast, like the Smithsonian or Cody, um, you know, I can't afford what we don't have. So it's not really an issue. Um, but what I collect is actually, um, and the way I think I phrased it at a, at a gun collector meeting that I was at, uh, was I collect naked lady pictures. <laughs> that are used for, well, I started off doing gun advertisements. Um, and I started off like, so in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you get a lot of these really kind of risque advertisements that uh, gun companies are doing in the U.S. Um, Winchester's Bird Buster series is one that a lot of people know of. It's not risque, but it's like, you know, they hire Playboy photographers to do their, you know, advertisements and you've got these blonde women and they're, you know, throwing their head back. And I love one because there's like this, uh, there's sunglasses, she's wearing sunglasses and you can see that the, the, the clay pigeon's been broken, it's been shattered in the air and you see the reflection. And as someone who also studied um, armed feminism in the 60s and 70s, you know, it's like the ultimate like male gaze thing to me. And I love that, <laughs> but I won't get that. But what's interesting is that's the American version. And, you know, they got Playboy involved. But then you look at, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Ian, but old European, Italian, Spanish, Winchester advertisements are like the most risque things like I've ever seen. Like there. No, is, I um, can't say I ever have. I probably will be now though. Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you <laughs> pictures. I'll send you. I'll send you a photo of my like old place in Wyoming where I had them all up. Um, so like there is this one advertisement that I'll never forget. Um, it's it's this you know she, I think it's an I think it's it's Spanish or Italian, um, and she's got you know chaps on and she's being branded by the Winchester logo. Um, and then there's multiple versions of it. One where she's very surprised, you know, and one where she's just kind of like, eh, it's okay. Um, and then there's other ones. I have one where a, a girl is wearing, you know, a shooting vest and she's got a shotgun between her legs and the Italian translation is, you know, riding shotgun. 
Um, <laughs> and there's all of these ads that popped up. Um, Winchester was really guilty of it. Although I've, I've been talking to some of the people that provide these, um, you know, images, because there's not a lot written about them, not a lot known about them. But there is a, is a conversation that I want to do more research into, and I know who I can ask about it. I just haven't had the time about the fact that John Olin didn't really realize that these were getting put out overseas. And when he found out, he was real pissed. <laughs> so they're not easy to, to track down. And I discovered them in grad school because I wanted to study, you know, naked ladies and guns and, and, and what's the kind of like fascination with it and connection with it. And now it's turned into, I have a Dan Shuey. I don't know if you know Dan and for the people listening, Dan is like the penultimate Winchester ammunition, you know, collector authority. Um, and he is my, he's my dealer, man. Like he hooks me up because he had such a relationship with Winchester that he's got these one of a kind things. So now I'm getting stuff from Dan that like never went to print, but was like, I I've got one. It's one of a kind. It's, um, it's very, very risque. It was never an ad. It was made. Um, it's got a Bob Allen case in it and there's a note on the back of it because it was a Winchester executive thanking Bob for something and like so now I'm getting all these things that used to hang up like in the basements of Winchester's like executives man caves and I love it I think it's so cool nice. but I think it's probably the last thing that people would assume that I collect but because I'm around guns all the time yeah I collect guns that I find cool and I collect you know I've got a lot of modern guns but you know something like that that's gun history but so off the wall I find far more fascinating it's got to be hard to collect actual firearms when you run a, a museum like Cody and like everything's already there. Yeah. Like half the, half the challenge is finding something and discovering what it is. And if you run the museum, like it's all there. You, yeah. That, that would be awkward. It's so. very, you know, so I found something different. The museum wasn't interested in them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so that's what I've been collecting, you know, but for the museum, you're, you, you're exactly correct. I mean, we, there's so much stuff that we already have that Danny and I end up running around like the Vegas gun show, um, trying to find things that nobody wants. Uh, like we were looking for, uh, oh gosh, I can't even remember the caliber. You may remember it. Uh, a Lafayette pinfire and the caliber of the gun that was allegedly used, um, by Van Gogh to kill himself. Allegedly, because there's a probably seven millimeter. I think it's yeah, it's it's like a terrible choice, and and he shot himself in the chest, according to how it all went down. But there is a challenge that um, there's some people who did some research that claim he was murdered and not, um, mm -hmm. and that he didn't commit suicide. But that the g actual gun they claim went to auction and I did want it, but we didn't have a, a, a pinfire in that caliber. So we ran around Vegas a couple of years ago trying to find one and like for, you know, nothing. <laughs> you know, with the curator right. of the Cody Farms Museum, you know, I'm running around the show and everybody wants to show me their incredibly valuable stuff that I can't afford because, you know, museums <laughs> aren't made of money and I can go, buy, go and buy a seven millimeter pinfire revolver. <laughs> so yeah, we, we tend to look for things that people don't realize nice. we would want. And that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But that, we that wanted to tell how that I started story. my collection. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So what's one of the, so we know that you're a French, you know, firearms collector. What's one of the weirder things that you collect that people don't know you collect? Boy, to be honest, I don't know that there is anything really fundamentally that I collect that people I mean, maybe they don't know because I don't really I don't publicize my collection itself on the channel, but yeah. none of this would surprise anybody. Um, I have a substantial collection of Japanese rifles, a lot of which I got from my dad because that was his focus, but I've mm -hmm. added to it since. 
um, for I'm always interested in unusual mechanical stuff. So you know, long long recoil Frommer pistols and blow forward guns. I have a Schwarzlosa 1908. Um, actually, you know, probably the weirdest, the thing people would least expect is I have a collection of really terrible shotguns. Really? Why? Yeah. Um, I, cause they're just different and kind of weird. Um, I have a Winchester <laughs> 1911 Widowmaker. Um, I have uh, a pair of greener martini shotguns. Okay. Um, a Mark one and a Mark three. So one of those uses the specialty ammo to prevent, you know, if you killed the guy and took his shotgun, you couldn't really do anything with it. I have one of the Enfield bolt actions converted to 410. Um, I have a what appears to be an authentic Philippine, like homemade. Pump. It looks like the pump shotgun, but in reality, the pump. Uh, basically, when you pump, when you open the pump, the barrel is exposed, and there's a little flap that opens, and you can put a shell in the chamber, and then you close the flap, and then when you close the pump, it slides a metal tube over the flap to prevent it from exploding. I've never fired it. Yeah, I probably won't. Probably wouldn't. Yeah, um, but yeah. But I've got one of the Bannerman Spencer Bannerman shotguns. Um, I actually just recently bought a Richardson Gorilla gun. Okay. Uh, which is a a literal. It's just a slam fire pipe gun. Um, it's a really cool story. Richardson was a PT boat XO sunk in um, uh, in the Philippines in 1942 and ended up fighting with Philippine guerrillas for two and a half years. Um, interestingly, he ended up a lieutenant in the US Navy, which he had been when it started, and also commissioned a major in the Philippine army at the same time. He got the silver star from MacArthur, but spent two and a half years leading Philippine guerrilla bands. And he helped them build these pipe shotguns to ambush Japanese patrols with and then take their guns. And he came back from the war and in 1946, thought this would be a really cool thing to put on the commercial market. Yeah. And tried to sell them. And predictably, it didn't go well. No. Um, but the bunch of them are still floating around out there. Uh, so I did, I had a chance to film a, a couple at a collection and discovered like, wow, it's actually really fun to shoot this thing. <laughs> and so the guy had a duplicate and I bought it from him. Nice. Um, it That's also it. helps I... that these are all super cheap guns. Which, you know, again, not a problem. And maybe someday. Nothing wrong with that. Maybe yeah. someday they'll be worth something. But as uh, Danny and I say, we have a video in the new museum, which you know, because you've been there, but um, about collecting and, and, you know, are people in collecting to get rich? And it's like, no, normally when they sell a gun, it's to buy another gun. <laughs> yeah. 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 That right, would so be the one thing I would probably advise people on. It's like, don't think that you have to collect what's expensive or you have to collect what everybody else has highly desired. Yeah. Pick what you want for whatever reason. You know, and then I would give some advice as a museum professional that deals with a lot of these collections when people are looking at what they want to do with them after they pass. So we're saying collect what you love. Don't worry about whether it makes sense, you know, do your passion, you know, you do you. But then if, if we're saying that now, when you come to the museum 50 years from now and we decide that maybe, you know, we have a different collecting mission in your collection, don't get mad at us. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Because, yep. you know, so many people, they collect everything. And, and it is one of those really fascinating things that we can talk about maybe at another, another time Danny's on vacation. But is, you know, there are a lot of collections and, and that get put together and they're a life's work for somebody. And then what happens, you know, when they pass away? Because the reality is, yeah, it could come to a museum, but no, it's not going to be kept together the way that, 
you know, they had planned for it. And I think that does come into, you know, the conversation of private collection versus museum. And especially when you're looking at what to do, you know, later in life with, with what you've got. But we've been gabbing for a while, so we should probably wrap it up. But I do have a very important question, yeah. which is what are you drinking? I am drinking a lovely 12-year Springbank, which is a peated um, uh, Speyside whiskey. Cool. I, I, I just, really like it. I just have bullet because... I didn't come prepared, so I had to. <laughs> I had to pour the closest whiskey to me, and it was bullet. So you well, win. Conveniently, I can see you on the screen here. You've got bullet in a glass with a bullet. Yes, so I have bullet in a glass with a bullet. So there you go. These glasses are so cool. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Free, free shout out to Ben Shot. If you want a glass <laughs> with a bullet in it, they're pretty cool. And their email yeah. is probably drunk at gmail.com. So like, who doesn't want to work with a company that's email is that? <laughs> so people have to go look that up now because I can see it, but they can't see it. Yes, so it's very, very cool. And if you that. follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen it because I'm usually drinking out of it. But uh, well, thank you for guest hosting today. And, My pleasure. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Bring in some whiskey. And now I've got to convince Danny to let us drink on other podcasts. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> He, he came from Louisville, so he has to like whiskey to some uh, but, extent. So yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll work it out. But we'll also probably have you on the show. Um, we, do an, we do an episode every once in a while that we call um, People Smarter Than Us. Um, and we bring people on. So I'm sure you'll get a phone call for that one. And then, you know, you can just say anything you want about guns and just make us look down. <laughs> and that's, that's how it works. So thanks, Ian. And uh, <laughs> thank you guys for listening. And Danny will be back next week. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Thank you.